Well, if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to open them with me to the gospel according to Mark, chapter 6. The gospel according to Mark, chapter 6. If you are new with us or you are, have been away for a time period or you just don't pay attention, whichever, whichever one of those it is, I, I do want to, through all the other five chapters, I will say this to you, that I would encourage you this week to read through where we've been. To go back through and read these five chapters, and it's going to be five chapters and six verses now. But if you will go back and read, and if you have time, whether it's when you're riding in the car or you're sitting at home or whenever it is, if you miss some of the messages, we do have podcasts. And so you can go on our website and listen to the messages and get caught up. With that being said, I want to at least make sure every guest and every person knows something about the nature of Mark as we enter into this text. Because I believe that if you're here even for the first time, you'll be able to jump right in to this, to this text and you won't be too lost in the, in the conversation. But one thing about the nature of the book of Mark that needs to be stated, and we've said it before, is that this is a very fast-paced book of the Bible. It's a very fast-paced gospel account. And when we... When we study the book of Mark, we'll find out, and we have been seeing for a few months now, that as Mark writes, he's giving us actions of Jesus. So he's given us like the words of Jesus and the works of Jesus, and then we're seeing the reaction to his word and works. That, that's the way that Mark is giving us, especially the first eight chapters. <clears throat> and so we get the words of Christ, the works of Christ, and then we get reactions from people we get reactions from demons who actually, if you study the book at this point, you'll find the only ones that theologically are accurate in what they believe about Jesus is actually the demons. They don't submit to him as Lord for sure, but they're the only ones that actually have a correct theological stance on who he is as a person. Mark has told us from the very beginning of his book, the very first sentence of the book of Mark says the beginning of the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ, the son of God. And so we're told this from the beginning, but thus far in these first five chapters, only the demons have actually gotten that right. Since from non-religious, from people, reactions from demons, reactions from religious people, reactions from non-religious people, we get reactions from strangers, we get reactions from family. His family in chapter three said they went to go seize him. They went to go find him. They went a town over looking for Jesus to seize him because they believed he was out of his mind. They believed what he was doing was reckless in his ministry. And so we had reactions from them. We, had, we have reactions from individuals and we have reactions from entire crowds and groups of people. Today is going to be a reaction from a group of people. It's gonna be a people from his hometown. And so as Mike got to come back today and do a ministry minute for his home church, Jesus goes back to his hometown. And I hope that we receive Mike better than they are going to receive Jesus. Okay, but, but they, they, he comes and in chapter six, verse one, we'll pick up there. It says that he went away from there. From there was where we were last week where Jared Rogley did a fantastic job breaking down chapter five for us and really the story of Jesus healing a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and him going into the house of a man named Jairus and healing his daughter who was 12 years old, who was dead. 
He came and he healed her. It was an event where he brought her from death to life. And it was from that scene in that house with great displays of simple faith and great works of Jesus that he's going to leave there and go to his hometown, his hometown of Nazareth. Now, when we see this, it says he went away from there and he came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. I want you to understand this is not Jesus going home. There's no reason to believe it is anyway. Him going home to like see mama, check on the siblings, catch up with, you know, a friend from junior high. Like he, that, that's not what he's doing here. The language is set up so that we see he's going back as like an itinerant Jewish rabbi. He has his entourage behind him. He has his followers and they are coming and he is going to teach in the synagogue, as was his custom. That's what he was doing. Now, a quick note about this. When I say scholars today, so I'm gonna mention a couple times, I may say scholars or commentators or something like that. When I say that, I am certainly not assuming that I was able to study everyone that's ever written. There's no way I'm saying that. I'm not saying that I even read, you know, as much as what you might hope, but I did read seven or eight different commentaries. Okay. So when I say, when I say scholars, I'm referring to seven or eight people who are trustworthy sources or well-known sources or celebrated sources as people who study the book of Mark. Okay. And of these, the vast majority of them believed that this was the second time that Jesus came into Nazareth as a teaching ministry, if you will, or a rabbinic, as a rabbi, a, a rabbinic ministry. And so he, he comes in the first time, is what most commentators believe, is the story that we know from Luke chapter four. So very quickly, I want you to hold your place here in Mark and I want you to turn to Luke four because this helps, I think, set the tone for what Jesus is doing when he goes into a synagogue. For most of us in the room, you've never been in a synagogue. You definitely haven't been in one in the first century in Nazareth. And and so it, it definitely is gonna help us to see at least a scene of what this would have been like. Okay, And so look to preach a sermon from 4 verse 16. This is one of my favorite texts in the entire Bible. I would love to preach a sermon from this text, but that's not what we're doing today. So I'm not preaching a sermon from Luke 4. I'm just gonna reference it here. So just pick up with me, verse 16. It says that he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. Okay, so he came to a hometown and he goes to the synagogue. It says, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him as would have been the custom in a service in the synagogue. So he's given the scroll of Isaiah. He unrolls the scroll and he found the place where it was written. And here's what he read. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. We're told then that he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. This was in a position of a teacher. It's the very reverse of what we're doing today. In the synagogue, it was you who would be standing. It would be the teacher who would be sitting. Jesus sits down and he is going to teach. He begins to teach them. And here's what is summarized for us. Jesus said, today, 
this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What that means is he's saying the prophet Isaiah was referring to me and the ministry that I am doing, the kingdom that I'm proclaiming. The kingdom, I'm not gonna stand and point you to what another rabbi said about the kingdom. I'm not gonna tell you what another source said. He said, I'm standing before you as the one that is bringing the kingdom today in your presence. This is a very big difference from what they have received week after week from other rabbis that have come in. And the initial reaction is what we're gonna see as well in Mark today is that their initial reaction was they, they marveled. Like they were amazed, they were astonished. But then people started saying this, the talk began. It's like, is this not the, the kid that was raised by Joseph? We know who he is. We've watched him grow up. And they began to doubt him and talk about him. And then Jesus gives a reference that basically said, I came not just for Jews, but for Gentiles. And by the end of this conversation, I want you to look at verse 29 so you can see what has happened previously to where we are in Mark. It says, and they rose up and they drove him out of town and brought him to the edge of a hill that their town was built on so they could throw him down the cliff. That is one, that is, that is one first sermon, okay? Mine was bad. This is, this is rough. This is a rough response to Christ and his words. We're told that passing through their midst, he went away. That, that's a trick that I've never learned. It's one that I don't understand how to do, but he was able just to, woo, just go on through. But here's the thing. That was more than likely a year prior to this. By most people, what, what they're, how they're dating the work and the ministry of Jesus. And so after he has done some significant works, after his words are being passed from town to town and there's a big talk about his life and who he is, the, the goal of Mark, verses one, I mean, chapters one through eight is to ask the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Well, Right here, Mark is arguing he is the son of God. He is the messianic king. And we have seen signs and works that, that show this and words that proclaim this, but there's been much rejection to this point. There's also been much astonishment and amazement. Jesus goes back to Nazareth. Now, you would think to open arms. You would think to open hearts. Definitely ears that were prepared to hear, but that's not what took place. Now, when we talk about Nazareth, you need a little bit of, I think, historical setting. In the first century, we're talking about a town of less than 500 people. Like, this is a little town. To quote the famous historian Tracy Bird, I'm just kidding, if you know who that is. This is a place where everybody knows everybody. Everybody calls you friend, okay? If you know the country songs in the 90s, you know who that is. If you don't, you're completely lost and I just took you away from our sermon. But we're back, we're back now. He's not really a historian, he's a country singer. Okay, but this is a place, an ordinary place with ordinary people doing ordinary things, ordinary jobs. These are people who had at the forefront of what it meant to be human was you work hard and you have a simple life. This is 500 people or less that live in this town who they know something of this family. Now, 
Jesus does not have, we're, we're going to talk about our hometown in just a little bit, and we're going to talk about potential reasons why people would discredit us. There, that, that's going to be a conversation that we're going to have. But for Jesus Christ, he doesn't have character flaws. Like there's not inter, integrity issues. There's not as it would be skeletons in the closet. Okay. For him, it is, they are over, they are so familiar with this boy that grew up into this man that is before him. They are so familiar with what they have seen from this ordinary family that they have no room in their life for the redemptive work of God to be there. They don't see how it is possible that this person that's from this little town could have any significance in their life. John chapter one, if you'll remember, Nathaniel hears about Jesus. He says, what good can come out of Nazareth? Like what good can exist from this tiny place? How can anything of redemptive value happen here? Surely it would be some great place where the Messiah would come from. Surely one that's raised up in this ordinary environment cannot have such wisdom as this one portrays to have. And they begin to be amazed and doubt in the very same moment. And so I want you to see what it says. It, it says, he went away from there. He came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And we're told that many who heard him, they were astonished. And they said, where did this man get these things? Where is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon are not his sisters here with us. And we're told that they took offense at him. They were offended. The word offended means they, a stumbling block. During this season of time, during this period of the, when Mark would have been circulating within the, throughout the churches, Paul was also teaching in the churches. And Paul was talking about how the Jews had Christ as a stumbling block. That was the general statement of the way he was received. It was a normal statement that Christians understood that Jesus Christ came to his own, as John 1 tells us, and his own did not receive him. This is the, the story that would have been being passed on throughout the churches and Mark is giving evidence to it right here in his very hometown. Why were they offended by him? Well, we've already stated a couple of reasons, but they began to look around. They said, listen, this person, he stands and he teaches us as one who has authority. Because the way that Jesus would teach, if you remember, would be something like the Sermon on the Mount. And he would come up and he would say, you have heard it said this, but I say that, you know, a normal rabbi would say, they would point to other rabbis and their teachings. Jesus was saying, I can speak on my own authority. I don't tell you what another rabbi said. I speak from my own life. I speak from my own voice and my own thoughts and my own truth. He was able to fulfill the law in his very life. He was able to speak of the fulfillment of the kingdom of God in his very ministry. Jesus spoke in a way that no one else spoke. And here's the thing, they had two options. They could believe that it was from God or that he was from the demons. 
That was the only way they were able to express how this power came. In chapter three of Mark, he was accused of having his power come from the demons. In fact, the king of the demons, Beelzebul. That, that was the, the, the story, the narrative that was going on in the midst was the way that he does these things is because he has demonic powers. You better believe that that story, that narrative had made its way into this synagogue on that day. And people were saying, where is he doing, how is he doing these mighty works? Where does he get these words? This is a distorted man standing before us. Some may have been amazed. Maybe they were intrigued. It says they were astonished. I believe based on what I've read that they were negatively amazed. Like I am so amazed that he's doing this right now. I think they were amazed in that way. But if they were amazed by being intrigued by his teaching, it quickly left from being a positive thing to a negative. It went from them being amazed and astonished and intrigued to being disgusted, having an attitude of of being disgusted, confusion and contempt. It happened really fast. And this is the second time now that Jesus has been in this situation in the synagogue in his hometown. They didn't see how somebody could stand before them who hadn't gone through the right rabbi training, who didn't have the right apprenticeship. You know, this guy, his apprentice was evidently in handiwork, which was not offensive to anybody in the room. More than likely, most people in the room were, they, they did handiwork, you know, carpenter, you know, they were carpenters and, and they did physical labor and manual labor like that. It wasn't offensive. They were just saying, how is he acting like he is some special rabbi in our midst? He's a carpenter. He's a handyman for crying out loud. He didn't go to school. He didn't go to training. We've seen him down the street just a couple years ago or a year ago, he got up with his friends and skipped town. That's all we know. And now he comes back and he's all wise and smart. That's the way that they're treating Jesus. And then it appears that they go for some low blows. They go and they say, is this not the son of Mary? You know, more than likely this is, is this not the kid that had the the scandalous situation where dad wasn't there? You know, we know Joseph's in the picture, but yeah, that's, that's not really dad, you know? That scandalous situation that happened back then, you know, we don't talk about it. You know, the 500 of us don't talk about it in public, but we sure talk about it behind her back. That's the kind of thing that's going on here. They're saying it appears that these words are to tear down. That it's, you think this guy is something special? He's just like one of us. That's the words. We know his brothers And we've talked to them. Remember chapter three? I mean, it was the family, his closest relatives, the household. They said he's out of his mind. As a quick side note, just so you know this, who are here, James was one of his brothers. He ends up being the pastor of the church of Jerusalem. He wrote the book of James. Jude was a brother of Jesus. He ends up writing the book of Jude. It is a very interesting book of a a very small amount of verses. I'm personally glad a lot of times because it's a tough read, but Jude is a book of the Bible that we're glad it's there. But listen, these guys end up believing. But at at this time, at this season of his ministry, there's no reason to believe that even his brothers and sisters had belief in his, his redemptive work in the kingdom that he was proclaiming. They were offended by Jesus. I believe one of the main things they were offended by was this, 
the ordinary. I believe it was offensive to think that God would, would relate to the ordinary like Jesus said he did. That anything could possibly come out of Nazareth. You know, if God's gonna do a big thing, he's gonna do it from a big place. It's not gonna be the little town that we live in. If God's gonna do a big thing, it's not gonna be through the one that he's been helping frame houses. It's not gonna be him. It's gonna be the one that's been studying all of his life under the proper training, went to the right school, studied under the right person, but not this guy. We know what he did. Like we know where he's from. John chapter seven, verse 15, the Jews marveled and said, how is this that this, how does this man have this learning when he never studied? Like this guy, does he even read books? You know, like, like does he know how to study? Has he ever had a scroll in his hand before? Yeah, that's the kind of way that they're talking about Jesus. They were offended at him. And I want you to see the words of Jesus in chapter, I mean, in this chapter six, verse four, Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. He quotes a well-known proverb of the day and he applies it to his hometown of Nazareth. He replies it to his relatives, those outside of his house, and he applies it to the very people living under their same roof with him all those years. Jesus is an outsider in his hometown and his family and even at home. That's what we have here in the situation. It seems shocking to us, but that's, but that's the way this took place. The greatest obstacle of their faith appears to be how familiar they were with Jesus. The greatest obstacle of their faith appears to be their unwillingness to accept the God who condescends to us as a carpenter and as the son of Mary. It's so surprising. Surely he wouldn't come like this. A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown in a mocking verse in his household. Verse five, Mark says a very shocking verse. And I'll have to tell you, I'm still considering it. I'm still praying through it. I'm, I'm still working through it. I, I'll bring it up next week as well. But look at this verse. It says, and he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and he healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Now, here's the thing when we read this, this is a surprising statement because we know that Jesus is God and we know that God can do anything that is in his will. So like, we know that he has the power to do mighty works there, but why does it say that he could do no mighty work? And I would tell you this, is I want you to think about it as an individual. The Lord cannot work in your life for the good of your soul outside of what you'll receive. Like, like for you to, you know, it's not him withholding it from you, it's, it's you receiving. Like you receive and as you receive, God changes and transforms your life. If you reject what it, what's coming to you, you're not gonna get the blessing of it. Does that make sense? Well, here in this town, it's not that he can't do mighty works, it's that they don't want them. 
They don't want him. They don't receive him. They don't come to him for mighty works. Like no one comes to him asking to be healed. All the other places we have people reaching out to grab his outer garment. We have people asking him to heal their kids. We have them asking him to do things and to teach them and to invest in their life, but not here in Nazareth. They don't. They're offended by him so he can do no mighty works there. There must've been some who came and said, will you heal? And he did. He is more merciful and more compassionate than any person in this room. It wasn't a mean joke he was playing on the people of Nazareth because of their unbelief. It was they did not come to him and he did not heal them. It was they did not ask to be healed so he did not heal a body. In fact, they said, get away from us. They were offended by him. They tried to toss him off a hill. There is a very real truth this morning that is this, is that exposure to Jesus, his gospel and his kingdom are no guarantee of our faith in him. We can be exposed to him and yet still not desire him or receive him. We'll talk way more about what that looks like in just a few minutes. But what we see is this, is Jesus himself is told from Mark's perspective, and I love this. He gives a very, I believe, human response here. He says that Jesus marveled at their unbelief. That the son of God was amazed. He was astonished at their lack of receiving him. It's just telling the story that we knew. It's telling the story that we're aware of, that he came to his own and his own did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who called on his name, he gave the right to become children of God. We're told that from there, he went about among the villages teaching. Mark tells us in no other place that he goes back to that synagogue. And I, I just want, I don't want to scare you. I don't want to ever have a situation where my charisma or, you know, my excitement for the text puts some kind of challenge before you that just pushes you to some guilt-like faith, okay? Guilt and faith are not the same thing. But there is a very real thing that we see here this morning is we have the opportunity every day to either receive Christ or reject him, to receive his word or reject him. And here in Nazareth, they rejected him, okay? Now we'll pick back up on this story next week, but I wanna make sure that we spend some time applying for the rest of our study this morning. I wanna ask you to consider these points of application. Number one, if you have your note page, I, I would encourage you to jot these down. Sometimes home is the place where we find the most opposition to our faith and God's very work in our lives. Sometimes home is the place where we find the most opposition to our faith or God's work in our lives. Now, we talked about Jesus, how Jesus doesn't have skeletons in the closet, okay? But we need to make sure that we understand where we sit today. We do. Like we have reasons that people could discredit our faith. I'm sure if you look hard enough. 
And for the most part, the hometown, the picture there, the relatives, and especially underneath the roof, people know the worst. They know the very worst about you. Your worst is documented. This is a place where all of your skeletons are already known. Okay, now, when I say that, I want you to understand, this doesn't mean that everybody's story is the same. My story from being a pastor in the hometown I live in is actually one of great encouragement. Okay, I've really enjoyed being in the town that I was raised in. I live in the house I grew up in. The high school that I graduated from is just down the road. It's Hillcrest High School. I went to the University of Alabama. Like I've been here. But I still understand how to relate this text. I still know what it was, what it was like to you know, be especially young in my faith and not necessarily handle it all that well friends of mine that I should have shown much mercy and grace and compassion to, I chose to go other directions and hang out with other people. It was hurtful. You can imagine people must have thought, does he think he's better than us? Now that he's got his faith, is, is, is he better than us? Oh, is he Mr. Holy now? I remember people talking to me and saying, you did the same thing we did. How are you different than us? And my goodness, in younger days, I'm not sure I handled it well. I said, because I have Jesus and walked off and shook the dust off. Well, my friends, there's a whole lot better identifying with people that we can do. And I think it's very possible that, that for us, home, hometown, under the roof can be one of the most disturbing places to grow in your faith because you come in and it's, well, where did this come from? Oh, you're gonna talk about this now? Oh, you're, you're so busy at church, why don't you do your chores at home? <laughs> you're so sucked into that Bible, are you gonna talk to me? It can be a very difficult place to grow. It also can be the most cherished environment. I pray that my house is the most cherished environment for my kids to grow up in the faith. I think by the grace of God and his work, it will be. But I want you to know, and I wanna connect with you that I know it's possible that it's been a difficult situation for you. It can be hard for people who know you to accept you in Christ. I remember in a, just a positive story, I, I don't, I'm sure they don't mind me uh, sharing this, but even like with ministry, it was difficult to go under, you know, the metaphorical roof. I was already out of my house, but to go to my, my parents and say that I was gonna leave a family business to go into ministry. Because we had developed dreams as a family that, that didn't involve me pastoring, you know, or being a youth pastor or being an Alberta Baptist church. And dreams of families are something that are, they're, they're strong. And I know it was very difficult for my parents. It doesn't mean they didn't encourage me. They're members of this church. But, but, it, but it was, it's difficult sometimes to be the closest to people and to encourage and build up the work of God in their lives. And so I want to encourage you today, if you are at a place where you feel discouraged at home, I want you just to remember the beautiful gospel and the grace of Jesus. Remember that he knows what it's like to have a hard time at home. He knows what it's like to, to be rejected. But also he knows the beauty and the image of God that's placed on each person in your home. 
He knows the power that he has to transform and to change and to build better narratives. So I would encourage you to look for grace in the people's life under your home, under your roof. To expect to see it and to find it. And if you're a person who you're breaking down people in your home, I wanna encourage you to please stop and look for God's grace and his redemptive work in the life of your kid or your spouse, your brother, your sister, your parent, your friend, your coworker, the person that you may know the worst about them. Look for God doing the best because he can work out the most beautiful story in all of our lives. Build up, not break down the growth of those around you, especially those close to you. Point to Jesus Christ. Point to his finished work. Point to his approved work. Point to his victory. Point to his life. Point to his power. That's what's at work in that person in your family. So I want you to know it can be difficult Jesus can identify with you there. But a second point of application is this, and I'm gonna ask it as a question. Does how familiar we are with Christ or with spiritual things or with Christian language or with church impact our own growth in Christ? And I might say it is very, God can do in our lives. It's very possible that our imagination for what God can do in our lives has been very limited by what we have seen before our eyes. For some of you, you may have asked the question, you may come in here week after week, you may you know, read day after day, you may do whatever, and maybe you step back and you say, is this it? Like, is this all he's gonna do? Is this all we're here for? To sing some songs and to eat some food? Like, is that all we're here for? Maybe some of you have asked those kind of questions and you've become so familiar with church, church culture, Christian language, that you are completely missing the work of God in your midst. It's kind of like the mirror. You know, you can lose weight or gain weight, but you can go to that mirror and you can look at it day after day and not see a whole lot of change. Somebody else can walk up to you and go, man, you've been eating some hamburgers, what you've been doing? Or somebody else can walk up to you and go, man, you're looking good. You know, like, look, you've been working out. You know, like a lot of times we don't notice the progressive change for the good or the bad in our lives. We become so familiar with what we see that we miss out on the beauty of the work before us. Maybe you see so many churches as you drive into this one that you have lost the beauty of what God's work is with people and the grace of God that is that there are bodies of churches all around this city. Maybe you have forgotten that God does great works in small places. Maybe you have forgotten that God doesn't need big cities and big names to do big works or even small ones. Maybe God works in Gordo and Tuscaloosa. Maybe he works in small cities in Mississippi. Maybe he does things in places that other people would look down on with contempt. But that's not the way the God of the Bible functions. He identifies with the ordinary and he works miraculous through what would seem to other people as mundane. That's the God of the Bible. Are we too familiar with what we hear about Jesus to actually recognize him at work in our midst? That's the question. Are we willing to join him in what he's actually doing in this world? Which is a much harder work than what oftentimes we give ourselves to. It's a work of reconciliation. 
It's a work that he calls us as ministers, all of us into it. It's a work that's a lot bigger than just coming to a Bible study. It's a big deal. Are we too familiar? Do we actually miss what Christ is actually doing because of what we have framed up in our brains? Another question. Does the real Jesus of the Bible offend you? Or would the real Jesus of the Bible offend you? Is it possible that you have a Jesus in your brain that doesn't look like the Jesus of the scriptures? I am convinced that if Christ came in and with his own voice directed us in what he wants us to do in this city, there would be many of us defended. If he came in and told you what he views about politics, if he told you what he thinks about what you think of the way life and culture functions, you would be offended by him. The real Jesus of the Bible is probably at least in some part different than the cultural one that we develop in our brains. We must look for and seek and study the Jesus that is given to us in this book, not one that we create. The people here in Nazareth, they had a Messiah in their brain that was not the one that was standing before them. And the problem is, guess what? The one in their brain wasn't gonna come. The one that came, they rejected. Would the real Jesus of the Bible offend you? And I'll say it another way. Would the real claim of Christ that he is exclusive, the nature of the gospel is one that it is inclusive and that all people are welcomed in, but it's also exclusive and that it comes through Christ alone. Does that offend you? Because that's the words of Christ. Does the Jesus of the Bible offend us? Fourthly, last question. Is it possible that our lack of faith, and this is a difficult one, so like we're gonna have to think on this one for a bit. But is it possible that our lack of faith limits his redemptive work in ABC and in our individual lives? Like, is it possible that there's work that he is desiring to do that is part of just what he does, is part of who he is and how he works in his kingdom that we just are passive towards, that we miss, that we don't see it because we're not involved in it. We don't see it because we don't ask him to do it. We don't see it because we don't receive it. I think it's a troubling statement. It's a troubling question, but I think it's one that's healthy and good to ask. Are we open to Christ's kingdom here in our midst? Are we open to Christ's kingdom here in our lives? If so, I believe we would see him do a, a work that we haven't seen, a greater work than what we see. I think he's doing wonderful things here. But I think it's very possible that there are parts of what Christ desires to do that, that we don't have ears to hear. With that being said, I'm gonna end with a couple of statements about our faith. Cause you may say, well, I, I'm confused. What, what can I know that I'm to put my faith in? What am I to receive? Here's just a few things and we'll close. The first is this, we are receiving by faith Christ's finished work for us. We're receiving by faith Christ's finished work for us. When we receive his finished work, it's not a work that as far as what was done on the cross, there's nothing else to complete there. 
There's still work that he is to do when he returns and judges and makes all things new. But during this time, the finished work of Christ is sufficient. It's done. And if we receive it, we should be able to walk in freedom. And as we see it more fully, we'll walk in freedom, we'll walk in confidence, we'll walk in victory, we'll walk with the new and great identity, we'll walk knowing that we're approved by God in the midst of any rejection that we might face, in the midst of any struggle that we may even have searching in our brains. We focus on Christ's finished work and we receive it. By faith, by, we, we receive his sure promises that are given from his word to us. Promises of what have been done and promises of what is still to come. As we receive these, we are able to walk in hope. We're able to walk in confidence. We're able to know that what we're experiencing in the now is so important, but it doesn't have a final word on what will come. The sure promises of God help us walk in any rejection as we follow Christ. But also our faith, we have faith in that he loves us. We have faith in his love for us in the world around us. We receive that love. And as we receive his love, we're able to now walk in love for our neighbor, for our family, the neighbors closest to us. We're able to walk in love. And by faith, we receive his power. Even if we feel so weak, we receive his power in our lives through the Holy Spirit and we walk in our lives in the very power of God. There's so much to receive. There's so much to take in of the the words and the works of Christ. But those four things right there are what we need to focus on today and we desire to receive. We receive his finished work. We receive his sure promises. We receive his love for us and we receive church his power and we walk in it. Today, we have the opportunity as always to receive this word or to walk away rejecting it. Today, by the power of God, by his grace, we come together and we just say, I wanna receive, okay? Let me pray for you today. Father, thank you so much for this group of people. Thank you for this church body. God, I do pray that everyone to the extent that they can, Lord, that they would have their hands open, receiving your word and your goodness for them today, that they would receive your mercy today that's new. It was new this morning. They would receive your good news. They would listen to your words, Lord, that I would listen to your words, that I would give myself to you, knowing that you're trustworthy and good and you're kind. Father, I pray that you would do such a great work here as you see faith. As we reach out to you, we ask for you to heal. We know that you desire to heal. You don't desire to impress. Lord, we ask for you to bring healing in this place today. Bring life in this place today. Bring power in this place today as we look to Jesus Christ. 